0: Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. This is really tight. I feel like I'm in campus ministry again. Um, hey, it's good to see you. It's been a month since I've been here. I've been in Johnson City. Um, as you guys probably already know, we've had a couple pastors come here. We've rotated and kind of round robin our our preaching schedule this December as we did last December and even the year before that, something we like to do, and hopefully it introduced you a little bit more to the pastors in our other regional Acts 29 churches, Um, and they are really good. I mean, if you were here, I mean, it speaks for itself. They're very skilled leaders, have been very helpful in this church growing, Um, but I'll be honest, as cool as their churches are, as bohemian and big and talented, I, I do favor legacy. This is home and you are my people and I've really missed you. So I've looked forward to getting back here just to be with you and to see you. Um, turn in your bibles if you have it to Luke 2. Luke 2. You guys have been going through a series on the songs of Christmas or the canticles. If you ever hear that weird word said by people, a canticle is a song that appears outside of the book of Psalms. So what you've basically been looking at are the canticles that surround the birth of Jesus. So you've heard uh, Mary's song, you've heard Zechariah's song, uh, Simeon's song, and today we're not going to listen to people sing, we're going to listen to angels sing. We're going to go over the angels song today. Um, Hey, I don't know about you, and I I know it's different depending on who I talk to. Some of you, you struggle with this time of year, and some of you, you, you don't. I... I don't like this week of the year very much. I'm not a big Christmas person. And it's not because I see this giant retail conspiracy, although I think there might be one. <laughs> and it's not because I think there's deep pagan influences in the in the holiday, although I probably see a few of those from time to time as well. It's, it's just, I'm not big on celebrating a chunk of the gospel that we celebrate all the time anyway. So a part of me says, what's the big deal? I don't really even get what the big deal is. Let's just move on. Every day should be celebrating Christmas. I mean, we should celebrate Jesus being born every day. And, but my wife is really good to help me be a better missionary. She says, yes. But when the whole culture is celebrating Christmas, isn't it good? Isn't it a missional thing for you to do? To jump in and show them Christ more clearly? And the answer is yes. That's why I put up lights and I'm the decoration donkey, moving stuff from the shed to the house, putting stuff up wherever she tells me to put it up, you know, because she's right. But my favorite time of the year is not the week of Christmas, it's the week after Christmas. That last little breath of year before the new year dawns, between the 26th and the 31st, that is my favorite week of the year. By far, bar none. When most people are coming off of their Christmas bender and there's gift paper everywhere and people are searching for gift receipts and food and all of that, you will find me huddled away somewhere in some cave working on the next year's New Year's resolutions. I'm a big New Year's resolution honk, between 15 to 24 resolutions a year. Is what I, And I actually have an app for them that helps me track them. And in the July, I go back and I reassess them and refresh them so that they're a bit more realistic. I love resolutions. Now, in order to put a good resolution together, and I, man, I could write a book on this. I love it so much. I just, I'm just fascinated with progression and innovation. So these things are, are really intoxicating to me. But one of the things you have to do with a good New Year's resolution is you have to have a good assessment on where you've been. You just have to. You can't, you can't say, I'm going to read the whole Bible in a year twice this year if you, can't even, or you have not been reading even up to five minutes a day. That's not very realistic. You have to kind of springboard off of where you've been. So part of building New Year's resolutions is an appraisal of where you've come. The, the past year, I guess you can say. The thing about the holidays, maybe from Thanksgiving on, looking at our lives, looking at the year in review, Christmas almost acts a little bit like an air filter. An air filter being that it traps all the the, the particulates and the pollutants that are keeping your engine from running the way you want it to run, right? So you've been to the shop before. You've taken your car in for an oil change, right? We've all done it. We know inevitably that mechanic's coming with our air filter. It happens every time. We know it's going to happen. And we sit there and we convince ourselves we're not buying another air filter. I'm not doing it this time. I'm not doing it this time. I think I got an air filter last time I was here. I'm not going to let them bully me into another air filter. I don't care what they say. But then they come with that air filter, don't they? And they're always good to bring a new one to compare it to. So you can see a a bleach white brand new air filter and then yours, right, with glitter coming out of it and hair bands and all kinds of stuff, dead animals. (laughs) And usually just say, go ahead and replace the air filter. Or I do anyway. Don't judge me. I just do, right? But the end of the year can act like that sometimes. We look and we see the vows that we've dropped, the promises we haven't kept, last year's New Year's resolutions that didn't even make it to the sunny side of March. We see all the new broken relationships that we've had that we didn't have the year before, all the new strife, even the new fears. I mean, this fear, well, this fear, this year, this annual year in general, but Really specifically, our last news cycle. So, I would say probably around Thanksgiving all the way up to today, we've had enough news come through to remind us that we are not safe and that we are surrounded by strife. I think about Ray Rice and Bill Cosby and what's happening to their legacies and their reputation, and what does it show you? That your assumptions of people are never safe. Sydney. In this little cafe that people are floating in and floating out of every day to get a coffee, right? And all of a sudden there's a gunman there and two people die. What does it show you? Your normal is never safe. Your routine is never really safe. This horrible tragedy in Pakistan where kids are killed shows you your kids are never really that safe, are they? All the flashpoints of racial division popping up all over the country, even last night with two officers being killed shows you that your community is never really that safe. I think about Russia, how their economy is coming apart at the seams. Their money is being devalued at a rapid pace, showing you that your money and your economy is never really all that safe. Sony being hacked shows you that your privacy is really never that safe. Your identity is just not that safe. Ebola ripping through countries still. Shows you that your body is never really that safe. Your health is not that safe. ISIS, acting like ISIS, shows you that you, you are really not all that safe. And mankind stands back, just like you and I do. We are mankind. We look at these news stories, and we're compelled to start maneuvering and shifting all the variables in our life to make sure that peace stays with us and strife stays far away, right? That's why you see people buying gold as fast as they can. That's why licenses for concealed handguns are going through the roof. That's why you see people storing up things. That's why people are pulling their kiddos out of school. It's not for religious conviction anymore. And it's not because people think that teachers aren't smart in the school system anymore. Now folks are pulling their kiddos out of school because they think it's not safe enough for them. That's an increasing trend. You guys remember Y2K? Some of you don't need to be shaking your heads because you're like four whenever that happened. Or three. You don't remember anything. I remember Y2K. I had a buddy who bought enough razor wire that a loading, a big mattress truck had to bring it to his house because he was going to keep the hordes away whenever the Y2K bug hit, right? Razor wire. He had stored up wheat and water. We were so poor back then. We couldn't store up anything. Even if, we, if I wanted to get caught up in that, we couldn't. If I think we had like six cans of green beans and two gallons of water. That's about as prepared as we could get. But that's what it looks like. We'd start maneuvering. We start doing anything we can to manufacture peace, to make our circumstances favor us. And the more I get to know people, whether they love Jesus or don't love Jesus, the one thing that is common, a commonality with all mankind, is we have a deep hunger for peace. And we have fears that strife will overcome us. So today, as we look at this last song in this series of Christmas songs where we hear the angels sing, know that they're singing about peace coming to earth. And peace isn't a feeling. Peace isn't a situation. Peace is now a man. A man who came to save. A man who was born among us to save. A king. A Messiah. A Lord. A Christ. He's coming in the form of Jesus through a couple of teenagers in a shed that holds animals in this little speck of a has-been town. That's what the angels are going to be singing about. Peace has come. And God shows us That in his gospel, peace is not something that we can arrange with our own hands and arrange with our own decisions as much as peace is a person coming to rescue us from the strife that we live in. So Christmas really celebrates the beginning of the end of strife. Christmas celebrates the beginning of the end of strife. We had a song playing up here while some of you were walking in and now it's been redone. It sounds very cool right now, but it's from the 1100s. The name of the song is The Strife is Over. It's got a couple lyrics that say, Victory of life is done, and the song of triumph has begun. And I love that because when the baby comes out, Christ has come out of Mary, and the baby screams. It's not just the scream of a baby, it's the cry of a king. It's the screaming of the song of triumph. The song has begun. And who is quick to follow in after the cry of the baby? The song of the angels. The angels flanking Bethlehem. The angels flanking the fields, joining this baby because of what this baby will do someday. Peace is not a person. Or peace is a person. It's more than just a feeling. The angels know this. Something very beautiful. Gloria in excelsis Deo was written from this passage and from this scene angels we have heard on high, the carol we sing every year was written from this scene. Angels we have heard on high sweetly singing over the plains and the mountains in reply echoing their joyous strains. See, the fullness of time had come and God pulled the trigger so that now the gospel of God is displayed before mankind and it all starts with this moment, this moment in a manger. I feel like this song that we're looking at today that we're ending this series on is super timely. Because I think everyone in here probably entered the room with strife in their life. And I don't know what your strife looked like, what the flavor is. Some of it, it's some of you, you, you struggle with God. Your strife is with God. Some of you, the strife is internal and it's with yourself. Some of you, it's strife with others. And I get this because I am you and I have strife. I've, I've watched where my strife is aimed the last few days. I've got struggles. I've got doubts. I was talking to my wife. I have doubts that I even have what it takes to lead a church like this towards a healthy direction, to be positive influence to the city, to bring the gospel to the lost of Knoxville. I have doubts. I struggle, and I have strife, just like you do, really believing that God is satisfied because Jesus was sufficient. Sometimes I just don't really believe That God is totally satisfied. So I try to please and I try to perform, and there's strife there. I have strife all over the place with relationships that are very close to me, my family, even, my marriage, even. I have strife with those who are far from me, those who don't love Jesus that I want to get to know. Strife in every direction. I struggle with having even strife with this city. The city of Knoxville that Wes so rightly said, we have come to love and to serve. You know, I struggle with the, the racial division. Listen, we're far from Ferguson, and at the same time, we're not very far from Ferguson. Okay? Just sitting in the laundromat on Friday, hanging out with someone who is not white, and listening to them talk. And there's a piece of me that says, this guy's being dramatic. We're not in St. Louis. Calm down. Pump the brakes. And then I realize, no, he's being serious these flashpoints you see all over the country, friends, we're not special. This city's not special. We're, we're one bad decision away. Where the, wherever you were at on that spectrum of what you think happened or should have happened, listen, w- racial division is now a flashpoint here in our very own city. There's strife here, strife everywhere, strife in my own body as I watch it falling apart from the seams, you know, as the days go on and as I get older and new aches and pains and I'm not as spry as I used to be strife everywhere we all have areas like this wanting peace but only getting strife and anytime we get peace it doesn't stick around very long it's like trying to nail jello to the wall (laughs) it just sticks around for a little bit and then it plops on the ground and this is the way it's always been when strife entered mankind and many of you know this it happened in the garden right adam sins strife starts being invested in every direction in every department and then death quickly followed after. And whenever this happens, you can, you can literally see, you can watch it unfold how Adam and Eve had strife with God, with themselves, and with others. And, and we are no different. He had strife with God. That's why he was found in the bushes. Strife with God. Strife with self. He was ashamed, trying to cover himself. Shifting blame everywhere. It's your fault, God. It's her fault, God. Then there was familial strife in the family. The very first murder was in the very first family. It was patricide, Cain killing Abel, everyone turning on themselves. Then there was strife with the earth itself. God saying, no longer will the earth throw its bounty up for you so easily. Now it's going to happen through blood and toil and sweat and pain and strife. It's going to be difficult. Even family dynamics are going to have strife. That's why God tells the woman there will be pain in childbirth. It's not just childbirth, the act of birthing a child. It's in child rearing. Parenting has pain and strife with it. It doesn't come easily. Just as the land doesn't yield up its bounty for the man, the, the family doesn't yield itself up all that easily for the mother and the father either. Strife everywhere. But we have this peculiar little verse in Genesis 3, is this on there, Genesis 3? Don't, don't turn in your Bible. We're going to put it up there really quick. He drove out God, being he. God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right? How crazy is this? I don't even know what that looked like. A flaming sword like that looks like, but God was guarding re-entrance back into the garden. Now, this is a gospel picture right here, all right? It's a nuance or an echo of the gospel because what Christ effectively did for us as the second Adam, not an Adam created from the dust of the earth, but the second Adam created by the breath of God and the Holy Spirit. Whenever you see this second Adam, metaphorically, he's stepping back into the garden. He's stepping into that cherubim sword, allowing us to reenter the garden of God that we can partake of the tree of life. That's what we see here. So when you read that, just know this is God tipping his hand and letting us get a future shot at what the gospel will look like for us because Jesus paid the price for the strife we created. And Christmas celebrates this, celebrates peace deleting strife. Peace has come and peace is a king. And this is what the angels are going to sing in this text. So let's look in Luke 2 and we're going to skip to verse 8 um, because I think that's probably where... It sets it up, the song, the the fastest for us. In verse 8, this is what the Bible tells us, very helpful. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Okay, we're going to pause there because this text is introducing a character. It's the shepherds, right? And the shepherds are the bottom of the social heap. And because it's cold outside, whenever the temperatures got aggressive, like that, that they would stay overnight out there with their sheep. They didn't always do that, but, but they would do it when the weather would get cold, okay? Now, most scholars believe that these shepherds most, and I don't see any reason to disagree with this unless someone can prove it otherwise, these shepherds most likely watched over and nurtured the sheep that in a few months later would be used as the Passover lambs and the sacrifice, right? So get your mind around that for a minute. These shepherds who are guarding, nurturing, and feeding What might be a Passover lamb and a sacrifice are about to behold with their own eyes the true Passover lamb. The very last sacrifice. The true spotless sacrifice. The shepherd of all shepherds. That's what's going on right here. And we do have a little bit in common with these guys. Even if you've never been to a petting zoo or touched a sheep. Most of you haven't even touched a sheep, right? And you're thinking, what do I have in common? These guys as the bottom of the social heap, wandering around out there with sheep all the time, not really seeing anyone else unless they are a shepherd. Shepherds usually are just banging around and talking to other shepherds. They were usually known to be the last to get news, right? So Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie just broke up. They don't know for two weeks, right? That's like dropped off the news cycle, and they're just now hearing about it. Why? Because no one's out there but shepherds, and shepherds aren't hearing anything, right? Right? That's why it's beautiful that whenever God evangelizes mankind through the angelic realm, it's happening to those who don't even get good news. I love this because here we are, like the shepherds, roaming around, clueless, isolated, not deserving of good news at all, walking around waiting for good news to change our lives. We are shepherds, basically, on a planet of shepherds, right? So let's look, verse 9. Verse 9 says, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is, that's an important verse. I'm going to read that one again. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, and you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What I like about this passage is the angel who is speaking, and we don't know who it is. We don't know if it's Gabriel or not, because it's not stated. This angel is bookmarking this moment. In this city, on this day, under this bloodline, this is happening. Why? Because this is the answer to a whole lot of prophecy, a whole lot of anticipation. I mean, this is the fullness of time. God decided 400 years of silence and God speaks to mankind, not through spoken word as much as through the word of God himself coming and making an appearance. So the angels are saying, this day, this city, according to this bloodline. The Bible is written to satisfy investigators. That's what I like about this. The magi, the the, the wise men, went to investigate whether their signs and prophecies were true regarding a new king over the Jews. Even these guys, you'll find out later on, they bolted to go see if what, if what this angel said is true. The Bible can stand up on its own two legs before investigators and skeptics. Know that. As you talk to investigators and in, to skeptics, even in this city, know that the Bible stands up on its own two legs and can carry its own weight. It's, it's made for that to a certain extent. It, it was for me. I mean, it, it was for me for certain. One Here's a good example of what I'm talking about. Um, in Micah five two, Do we have that? Great. I put it all in there, but I can't remember what I put in there and what I didn't. Micah five two. This is one of the things that led me to Christ. This is one of the things that led me to Jesus. This passage right here. It's a random passage, but it was it. Micah five two. God is prophesying through the prophet of Micah to a city. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. I love this part. Whose coming forth is from of old from ancient of days. Okay, now check this. This was written 700 years before this actually happened. So as a scientist, as I was, as a skeptic and an atheist and as an evolutionary, as a guy that just didn't believe in any of this, whenever you put stuff like that as an investigator and a skeptic and I'm looking at a 700-year difference where it nails it, it shuts me up. It causes me to look deeper. The Bible is good for this. And one of the, One of the things the angel said to bookmark this for the investigating shepherds is the sign of a baby wrapped tightly in a place that should not hold a baby. Now, not too long after that, that same baby would be a man who again would be wrapped up tightly and placed in a place that should not hold a king, would not hold a king. You see a beautiful symmetry in the Bible. Wrapped as a baby, wrapped as a corpse, laying in a place, Not fit for a baby, lying in a place, not fit for a king. Another thing that helped me as an investigator, seeing that this stuff can't be made up. Verse 13, and suddenly, and suddenly, I love how there's a 400-year wait, and then things start happening very suddenly. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, okay, now pause right here because I want to talk a little bit about the heavenly host because it's another character in this, in this text, right? They appear suddenly, it was one angel, now it's many. No, we don't know how many of them there were. But these angels, they had an understanding that we don't have, right? These are angels that knew of Jesus, worshipped Jesus before Jesus came to earth, as a baby. You see, when the baby Jesus started, that's not when Jesus started. Jesus has no beginning. He is parallel with the rest of the Trinity, with the rest of the Godhead. So there is pre-incarnate Christ that these angels knew. They knew of the gospel. They knew of the plan of God. They're watching it unfold, and they trusted it fully because they can see it. And with all of their knowledge, this is what gets me, with all of their understanding, their response is worship. Worship. I mean, for for us, mankind, we get bored with stuff that we know. I've known, I know that guy, you know. I've known that person forever. We don't get as excited when they walk in the room. Why? Because I've known that person forever. These angels from time immemorial, from days of ancient, ancient days of old, They have known, worshipped God. And when God announces Christ to the world, they worship. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Verse. I need to change gears. I need to get going. Verse 14. Glory to God. It says, this is the song. They're singing. Shepherds are listening. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom... He is pleased. Now, the King James Version, uh, it does not read quite like that. So if you're reading out of the King King James, it's going to say something a little bit more like goodwill towards men. But that's not saying the same thing. That's, That's communicating something that's a little bit different because there is not peace to all of mankind. All of mankind is not experiencing peace. A subset of mankind is, but not all of mankind This says something a little bit different. Peace doesn't come to everyone. Just on who? Who gets peace? Those with whom his pleasure rests. Peace comes to those who God has pleasure with. Those who are buried in the image of Christ. Those whom when God looks at, he sees Christ, and when he sees Christ, he sees you. Because we are buried in his image. We're not wearing our own image as as Luther would say, we're wearing the cloak of Christ or, or the outer garment of Christ. One of my favorite depictions of this in the Bible is in Matthew 3:17. And don't even turn there because I'm going to move real fast through it. But as he's coming up, Christ is coming up out of the waters of baptism, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am what? Well pleased. Well pleased. And listen, if you love Jesus today, that's how he sees you. He is well-pleased with you. He sees you as one, forensically, who has just come out of the waters, as a son, as a daughter, as family. Well-pleased. So is God pleased with you because you're simply a part of mankind? No. No, he's not. Strife exists for mankind. That's, That's mankind's lot. I mean, peace might come, but it's just going to come and go. It's all circumstantial, right? If the line at the post office is long, you have strife. There's no peace, right? If, if the whole strand of Christmas lights light up, you have peace. If half of it does, you get mad, you throw it in the box, you have strife. I think that is a conspiracy, by the way, before we go on anymore. It just comes and it goes. But God is pleased with those and gives peace to those who cry out in agreement with the angels over joy and adoration of what this little baby will do. I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah 9. This also, by the way, was said 700 years before Christ came. Get that, seven centuries. Isaiah says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government, or the kingdom, you can say it either way right there. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and what? Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So I guess my question for you today as we float into Christmas is this. Where are you experiencing the most strife right now? Where is it? Is it with God? I'm going to explain what that looks like for us, by the way. Because we don't hide in bushes anymore, but what we do is not that that much more advanced. Is your strife with yourself? Is your strife with each other? These are the three things we saw In the original family, Adam and Eve, this is the same three things. We're we're very predictable people. We're boringly predictable. Some of us, our struggle and our strife is with God. And we look at God as if he is still at war with us. Still at war. Still upset. Still throwing rocks at us. Still angry. Still all about justice. Now listen, if you are far from Christ, I, I hate to say this, this is still true for you. You are still at war. Your sins declared war on God. You threw the first rock. You shot the first bullet. There is strife. And it won't, I mean, Christ is the only olive branch. He is the only one who has met the terms of peace in a time of war. So there is still strife. But I think it's possible for Christians to still feel like they're at strife with God still. Like they're trying to make an enemy power happy with them. And it's really hard to enjoy God when you're still trying to get him to put the gun down. It's hard to really enjoy God when you think he is out to get you and there is strife. And I think that's the way it is for a lot of people. Maybe you are living as if this relationship with you, that you have with God is just really, in fact, a fragile truce. That at any moment... The truce can be broken, and bullets are going to start flying again. Bombs are going to start dropping again at any moment. So every word is measured. Every deed is analyzed, and it is exhausting because you have strife with God. And I think, especially in the South, I bump into people that think that living that way is actually a noble thing. It sounds hard, but hear me out. Noble, because you're a martyr. Yeah, I know I'm not close with God, but it's because I've got work to do. I'm trying to get him to put that gun down. And I know if I do this, 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 and this, then maybe, maybe the war will stop for me. But friends, listen, that's not noble and you're not a martyr. That's unbelief. That's rebellion is what that is. Because what you're suggesting is, is that your way of getting God to stop the war is better than God's plan of stopping the war. He's already given us terms of peace and supplied the peace offering. And for us to say we have work to do is to say that what he had provided is just insufficient. Because if God is not satisfied, Jesus wasn't sufficient. There was not enough blood on the cross, I'm afraid. And that's a problem. That's a problem. It's not being noble. You're not being rugged or tough or Spartan about it. You're being disobedient. There's no need to have strife with God. God has healed the strife because of what Jesus has done. We were at war. God gives us the terms for peace. This is the price tag. This is what peace will cost you. But he doesn't just tell us, he supplies us. He doesn't just give us a price tag, he gives us treasure to purchase it because he gives us Christ. You know, when I was a real young man and... I mean, many, 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 many years ago. And I preached at my very first evangelistic crusade at Texas Tech. I was so excited. There was like 3,000 people there, I think. I might have done a little multiplication in my head because it's been a while. There was a lot of people there, right? And I ended up preaching something a little bit like what I just said. And I remember a student coming up and bowing up on me a little bit and saying, Luke, I don't agree with the way you paint God because you make him look mean. And God's not mean. He's a God of love and peace. He's not a God of wrath. He's not a God of judgment. He's not a God. I said, listen, friend, I think you've got this mixed up. Our God is a God that gave his enemies peace who didn't deserve peace. It was while we were sinners that Christ died for us. It was while we were throwing rocks that God brought a truce to us, a peace to us. It's while we were spitting at him, running away from him conceiving ways to be like God. While we were being that, God came to us with a treaty. It's beautiful. That doesn't sound like an angry God. It sounds like a God who's just, but a God who's graceful as well. Now when we have peace with God, it will lead you to have peace with yourself and then peace with others. Peace with self is something I've been thinking a lot about. There has been, we are a generation that loves to look at ourselves in pictures hates to look at ourselves in the mirror. <laughs> when I was at Disney World, that's where I went with my family, by the way, a week ago. And yes, it is everything the Disney World is said to be. But when I was at Disney World, I've noticed we we're we at the far reaches of the evolution of the selfie, right? Selfies didn't even really exist before they put the camera on the front of your phone. This is Wes's phone. I'll leave it alone. But... <laughs> right there. Now, it used to be there was just a camera in the back. Real hard to do a selfie when you can't see what you're taking a picture of, right? Because you're like getting your nose or half of your head. But man, you could see a rise in selfies skyrocket as soon as what? They started putting cameras on the front of the phone because now you could see what you're taking a picture of. All week at Disney World, I'm bumping into people who have these selfie sticks, these long telescoping poles that they put their camera or their phone on and they hold it out and no kidding like five foot out right and they're like hey check us out like elevated selfie right or or (laughs) selfie from the ground or whatever you can see the the tower and magic kingdom now here it is and i'm bumping into these big sticks with these expensive devices on the end of it we are a generation that will do anything to maximize and polish pictures of ourselves. but when it comes to looking at ourselves in the mirror we don't like what we see because we see everything don't we We see the flaws, we see the addictions, we see the habits, we see the past, our history. We see the thoughts that we think that no one else sees in our head. We see all of these things. And it brings shame, and it brings guilt. And we want to change, don't we? But we don't want to change because we're so fascinated with King Jesus We truly want to change because we feel guilty, and we want the guilt to go away, or the shame to go away. That's called shame-based obedience, by the way, or guilt-motored obedience. And again, like we just said, that is a way to supply your own way of atoning yourself by refusing what God has done to atone you. It's saying, thank you, God, but what you did was not enough, so I must do the rest of the work myself. I think the, and this is going to be uncomfortable for some of you. And listen, feel free to push back. I mean, after the service, if you want to talk about this, I'd love to talk about it, okay? And I expect there to be at least some resistance in you as I say this, as I say it. But as a Christian, if you did nothing else for God, as a Christian, he doesn't love you any less than he loves you at the time where you come out of those waters and he looks down and he says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. doesn't pursue you any less. doesn't regard you any less. Think about that. It is uncomfortable for me to say it. It's got to be uncomfortable for you to hear it. But God is not waiting for you to improve before he likes you. Or as Brian Rose said to me a few weeks ago, God is not in love with a future version of you. So we can be at peace. Listen, as a Christian, if you did nothing else... As a Christian, if you never read the Bible again, never prayed again, never wrote another check to the church, never showed up to another service, as a Christian, if you never did anything, God does not love you any less. It sounds dangerous to say, Luke, how can you say that? Aren't you scared that that's going to get people to not want to do things by saying that? No, I think a real Christian... I think if you are a true Christian, you want to do these things. You want to change. You want to see the addictions go away. You want to see the past handled well. You want to see the habits brought to the glory of God. You want to see those things, but not to offload shame or guilt, but because you love your God and you know that God has taken the shame and the guilt away from you. You can have peace with yourself. You don't have to have that strife. Not because you're performing well, but because Jesus performed perfectly where you could not and some of us we all of us we don't just have strife with god and strife with self it's very easy to have strife with each other right i love the way paul says it in romans he says if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with others only if it's po- hey if it's possible if it depends on you if the ball's in your court if you have any power live peaceably with others I know how hard it is. I mean, it's not always in our court, though, is it? Sometimes it's out of our hands. And there's strife even with that. Because if you're like me, I don't like it when people are upset with me and there's nothing I can do to fix it. We're fixers, aren't we? We want to get in there and and make them like us more. Like me better. I'm not as reprehensible as you think I am right now. (laughs) I lost a father and I lost two really good friends this year to death. Now, the thing is, is a couple of those people I had unfinished business with. Drives me nuts. There was strife there. I love how Paul addresses this. Why? Because he understands it. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with others. So, what about when it does depend on you? What does that look like? When the ball's in your court, are you taking responsibility? But Luke, it's not my responsibility. I didn't do anything. I mean, it's their deal. They started it. I did. Hey, I said all I needed to say. I did what I needed to do. It's their deal. It's not my deal, Luke. The answer to that is you clean it up. You clean it up. You take responsibility. Even if it's not your responsibility, you take... Why? Because Jesus took responsibility where it wasn't his mess. It was our mess. It was our responsibility. And he cleans up our responsibility. Remember in the marriage series... When I addressed the men, and we we defined what masculinity was, this is what real masculinity is. Masculinity is taking responsibility. Responsibility for messes, even when they're not your mess. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. As Christ followers, we take responsibility just like our Christ and our bringer of peace did. We become peacemakers. Christ showed us what a peacemaker looks like right? The gospel says the infighting between all of us, it's not, it's not even necessary. It's baseless because we had one who was at greater odds with us that took responsibility and healed a relationship. So the team can go ahead and come back up because I'm going to be finishing it right now. Jesus is the bringer of peace. And so when we worship Jesus, we should look like those who bring peace. It wouldn't make any sense to do it the other way. So as we enter communion today, and that's what we're about to do. So as Wes explained um, before this started, we're about to have more music. But it's not just music just for the sake of singing. It's it's music that your heart can agree with the lyrics, but also that you have a little bit of time to wrestle. Wrestle not with the strife, but why you have the strife. Think about where your strife is aimed. Are you at discord with God? Are you at discord with yourself? Are you at discord with others? Are you all three? I'm all three, by the way. (laughs) I'm all three. It gives us time to think about that. And we have communion in the back, which is a display for us of a body that was broken, this baby that we're talking about, and blood that was spilt to cover our shame, our guilt, to cover our disobedience, to cover our rebellion, to cover us. So I'm going to ask you to think of a couple things. This manger that is surrounded by angels tells us that peace has now come and peace happens to be a person. These angels, they sing the gospel. How has that peace slipped out of your life? Where is there still strife? Where does that exist? Are you still fighting a war with God? Or think he's fighting a war with you? Are you fighting a war within yourself Are you fighting a war with others? And if so, where is the gospel not connecting to you? Where are you not seeing? Where are you not seeing this clearly? What is difficult for you to really get your arms around? I mean, you you know it, but you don't know it. Where are the pieces falling out for you? And for some of you, if you're not what we call a Christian, if you do not love Jesus, I would say God does desire a peaceful end to the war with you. He desires that. God desires a peaceful end to the war with you. And he does not just declare what it will cost to get peace. He supplies it. He supplies the peace offering. Who does that? Who does that? When I want people to, when I want to forgive people, my flesh wants to put terms out there and I want them to meet those terms. You come up to me. You meet my terms. I'm a discord with you. We're not going to be reconciled until you meet my terms. God puts terms out there, and then he meets his own terms by coming to earth as Christ. Man, I love it. As this baby comes out in this dirty manger in this little has-been town, I love it that even the angels agree that this is a very beautiful beginning to a gospel. So let me pray for you. Go ahead and stand with me, and we'll pray.